Uh, right, I am starting a new uh, series called Cerebrating the Scriptures. Not celebrating, cerebrating. Uh, yes, you, you get you know you get the word cerebral meaning meaning brain. So cerebrating is to is to think deeply on the scriptures. In other words, we're we're going to go uh, fairly deep eventually. Um, many, if not most, evangelicals think. That, that's what we do when we read our Bibles um, in our devotional times or we're listening uh, to sermons or preachers who take their texts and themes from the Bible and we discuss them in small groups. Uh, well, that's all uh, well and good and is very valuable. Um, but in this series, uh, I want to be looking at... Uh, Questions like, in what sense is the Bible authoritative? Why, why does it uh, have any kind of influence on our lives? How reliable is the Bible? Um, how do we read and understand it? Uh, does the Old Testament serve any purpose for New Testament Christians? And what is the relationship between the two? Uh, and how does a 2,000-year-old New Testament and a much older Old Testament apply to 21st century people? Um, with all that we know of our technological wizardry and the advance in science and knowledge uh, compared to all those years ago. I'm sure you will agree with me that every Christian needs a good understanding of the Bible. Our entire experience as believers uh, depends on that. Uh, but if you want a good understanding of the Bible, how do you go about it? You will hear again and again that you should devote yourself uh, to reading the Bible every day. Uh, we heard it preached a, a couple of Sundays ago. And uh, then you should meditate and you should pray over what you read. And uh, though I would be the last person to decry regular Bible reading, if you merely start at Genesis 1 and work through all 66 books of the Bible until you get to Revelation 22, that's going to take you an awful long time. Not only so, uh, but I guess that by the time you've got a third of the way through, if you manage to get that far, you will feel yourself absolutely uh, reeling under all the information that's come out. I, I read of uh, uh, the words of one man, Max Anders, who describes how he started that and felt hopelessly entangled in a jungle of fantastic stories, unpronounceable names, broken plots, unanswered questions, endless genealogies, and an avalanche of tedious verbiage that defies comprehension. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and uh, he came to the conclusion that the Bible was a series of unrelated stories that were put together at random and hidden away in incomprehensible clutter. Uh, well, <laughs> if, if that is your experience of what the Bible is about, you are going to seriously misunderstand it. Um, when I was a little boy living in Kent uh, during the war, and indeed after the war, I remember that every year my grandmother used to purchase a copy of what was called Old Moore's Almanac. It was spelt with a K at the end. There is an Old Moore's Almanac that is produced in Ireland, in, in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, that is nothing to do with this particular publication. Uh, but this almanac was authored by uh, a Francis Moore, who was a self-taught physician. Uh, <laughs> a self-taught physician <clears throat> and an astrologer to the court of King Charles II. And uh, he was also um, an astrologer, uh, a court astrologer. So his book contained weather forecasts, tide tables for fishermen, and astrological observations. Uh, but since Moore was representative of those who believed that the uh, position of the sun, moon, and stars influenced uh, human lives, uh, there was an awful lot of predictions of the future. And um, believe it or not, it's still being published today, updated each year uh, by a reputable firm of publishers, I say, and among its claims is that it predicted the 2001 attack on the Twin Towers. And uh, it, it enables you to know the times that are highly propitious for certain jockeys to be riding winning, winning horses. <laughs> among other certain information, such as lighting up times and tide tables, and, uh, and uh, phases of the moon and so on. And the publishers claim that uh, their old Moore is the number one seer with the best prediction record, <laughs> which immediately tells me that <laughs> if he's only got a, a best prediction record, he, they're measuring it against other charlatans as well. Uh, I'm not interested in one who, who's only got even a 99% prediction. I want to see a who, who knows 100% uh, what is to come. So uh, I guess my grandmother started to buy this thing because during the war, it was pretty uncertain. Uh, I can remember sitting around what we called the wireless in those days. It was a huge thing with a, uh, a knob to adjust the crystal uh, uh, set. And uh, listening to some of the uh, reports of defeats that we had suffered during the war. And people were, were worried about the future. And so uh, my grandmother was not a Christian. Uh, nor was the family, 
and so they turned to Old Moore's Almanac because it was purporting to offer them some kind of security for what might happen. Now, I mention this to make the point that the Bible is not a spiritual almanac. Uh, but that's how some Christians seem to use it. That they just dive into it. And somewhere in it, there is truth. You know, like the tide tables and, uh, and the lighting up times. Somewhere there is truth. But there's an awful lot in there uh, that they're, um, they're not so sure about. Um, so they don't know whether to believe it or, or, or whether not to believe it. And there are an awful lot of stuff in the Bible in ap apocalyptic fashion that they are looking for signs of what is going to happen um, even when we come out at, at Brexit or, 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 or all the future. Uh, and folk are reading the Bible as though it is an almanac. And in fact, you will often hear it averred that everything you need to know about your life and what's going to happen is found in the Bible. If only you read your Bible every day, you will discover that God has a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, now, quite apart from that assertion being about as useful as a chocolate teapot, um, the, if you don't know where the information is in the Bible, how in the wide world are you ever going to find it? Uh, assuming that when you do find it, uh, you will recognize it and uh, you'll be able to appropriate it. So, the claim is made that everything that you need to make for the decisions that you're, uh, you need to know about the decisions you're going to make in life is, is somewhere in the Bible. That is not true. In fact, the Bible uh, doesn't tell you any information at all about what is perhaps the most important decisions that you will make in life. It doesn't tell you who to marry. It doesn't tell you how many children to have. It doesn't tell you what career path to follow. It doesn't tell you what town or even country vanish that you should live in. It doesn't tell you what house to buy. It doesn't tell you whether you should join the armed services or whether you should go to university or whether you should take out life, uh, life insurance, health insurance or invest your money. It says absolutely nothing about those kind of things. And yet, arguably, they are among the most important decisions that you will ever make. You make a, a bad marriage decision, you're, you're likely to have a lot of tears, if not a lot of uh, lifelong misery. And um, they will not only affect you, but they will profoundly affect others that are around you. Yet the Bible doesn't say anything about them, not in specific terms, nothing directed. Now that doesn't mean that we are without any divine guidance. The Bible tells us that we are to pray about everything. It tells us that the peace of God will then guard our hearts 
and, and keep us like an umpire or a referee will keep us on track. So the peace of God, subjectively felt, I agree, uh, but nevertheless the peace of God will keep us. The Bible instructs us uh, not who to marry, but how to marry. Uh, don't marry uh, unequally yoked. Marry someone who is in the Lord. The Bible tells us that it is wise to consult uh, godly counselors. In the multitude of counselors, it says there is wisdom. There are spiritual gifts that are given to us. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, um, and, and other gifts that can help us uh, that are still operative in the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we read in Acts 16 when Paul was with his apostolic team seeking directions as to the next movement uh, that, that they, they had no idea where to go, so they tried to go into Bithynia, the northern uh, part of what is today Turkey on the uh, coastal strip of the Black Sea. And it says the Spirit suffered them not. Now, I don't know how that happened, uh, whether uh, there was a prophetic word, whether circumstances uh, somehow prevented them, whether they'd run out of money. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, but we are told that Paul then had a dream, a vision, a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And he submitted that dream to the team and said, guys, what do you think? And they concluded that that's where uh, God was leading them. And of course, the church at Philippi uh, was the result. The only problem with things like that is that, so far as I can see, it didn't happen to Paul again. It was a one-off, uh, unique occasion. And uh, that, that's the problem when you read the Bible and say, well, it, it happened to Paul, it's going to happen for us too. It, it seemed it was just a one-off occasion. Uh, so we can't look at that as a precedent. Nevertheless, we can say that there is some form of divine guidance. Uh, some people point at getting direction from biblical texts. Hopefully they don't do it like Derek did in a playful fashion in the prayer meeting the other day and just opened his Bible and plonked his finger down. Uh, that, is, that is not the best way of doing it. Other people claim to have heard a prophetic word or listen to a, a preacher and suddenly the preacher said something that, that, as it were, rang a bell with them. Or maybe the same thing happened in a conversation with somebody or a book they just happened to read. Others, believing they are more biblical, they put out fleeces like Gideon did. Although, for me, Gideon's putting out a fleece was a mark of his unbelief, not of his faith. Um, now, how can I possibly say anything against any of that? Um, because some of you will have done the same thing. And I have done the same thing. Uh, 
and I found it's very difficult when somebody says to me, God told me to say, no, he didn't. I, I, I just don't know. Uh, my difficulty with all this is that it is so subjective. You see, I've, I've had people come to me and say, look, I've got this guidance from, this, from the scriptures. I read those scriptures, but I don't see what they see. Uh, I wouldn't draw the same conclusions as they do from the circumstantial evidence that that seems to mean so much to them. And like most of you, I suspect, or maybe you've not had it as often as I have, people come to me and say, I've had a word from the Lord for you. Um, most of those words I've ignored. Uh, and I... I, I think you'd probably be wise to do the same. If God wants to speak to you, he'll speak pretty, pretty directly. I, I've heard so many people assure me that they've heard from God about their direction in life, and two months later they're doing something totally different. Uh, I've spent countless hours in premarital counseling trying to help young people discover whether they are right uh, for one another and whether they should marry or not. And I've heard them say, we prayed and we've sought God about this and we're sure this is right. And uh, so we've held the wedding service and we've heard their vows. And, and two years down the track, in one instance, six months down the track, they're divorced. <laughs> I remember... I remember almost in this very spot a couple who were members of this church telling me that, uh, that this church was their spiritual home, that they'd left the church and gone elsewhere and come back. This was their spiritual home and, and that, that, that they appreciated my ministry and, and that's it. We found our roots. Three weeks later, they were gone. Three weeks. And to this day, I have no idea why. I didn't know whether it was something I said or not said or done or not done. Now, my intention in mentioning this is not to deride them or disparage them. I'm simply saying that the claim to hear what God is saying is inherently subjective. Now, if I can give a personal testimony. I've always sought to follow what I believed to be the leading of the Lord. Christian and I believed that I should leave my well-paid job with his excellent prospects to enter full-time ministry. As a result, I traveled the country. We made major disruption uh, to the education of our children. I came to Bury, served this church for 30 years and counting all as a result of endeavoring to follow what I believe to be God's leading. Uh, but being absolutely honest with you, every decision has been totally subjective. And for all our certainty, when we took it, other people have disagreed. I remember when I joined Home Missions, Tom Wilson, you remember Tom Wilson? Tom argued with me, he says, you're making a big mistake. Uh, so did David Powell, another very outspoken minister. Uh, 
and I had to say to him, uh, if God wants to stop me, Mr. Powell, it won't be your voice <laughs> that does it. You see, we found that when we prayed, doors of opportunity opened and we walked through them. And we trusted that God would shut the door if we were wrong. Now, were we right? I have no idea. Uh, would things have been different if we had made alternative decisions? The truth is, I just don't know. What I do know is that I trusted God to be sovereign over all and my decisions. And I have to say that um, there have been decisions that I have taken that I have regretted, uh, mainly because they've hurt other people. Uh, but um, here I am, having passed through some pretty tough times, times when tears fell quite freely, times when it seemed pretty dark. Um, and somehow I drew comfort from the fact that God was sovereign and that, that I was trusting him that whatever decision I make, he could turn, even if it was evil, he could turn it round for good. And, and here I am today, um, by the grace of God, uh, having proved the scriptural adage that everything comes to pass. It does. It does. Your dark days will pass. Your dark moments will pass. Now, as I was thinking about this, I remembered many years ago uh, that I had a, a very highly respected, well-known uh, minister of Assemblies of God who was a missionary, a guy called David Newington. You will remember David. Uh, he was an extraordinary man. He, he uh, went to Africa, founded Lifeline to Africa. It was a literature publishing organization. They got their own printing presses. He designed all the literature. Um, and and it, it went out to all the nations of Africa. And literally hundreds of thousands of people have come to Christ and been discipled through that ministry. This, this was a man who obviously was uh, aware of God and his leading and how he operated. And I was just a young minister. Uh, in fact, I was, I think at the time, I was wondering whether to join home missions. Uh, and uh, he was in our house. He'd preached at the church. And uh, I said to, to him, uh, how can I know what God's will is for my life? And he looked at me and smiled and said, young man, What's in my will is no business of yours. And equally, the will of God is none of your business. And I was stunned. I was absolutely shocked to the core. I thought that he was going to uh, come out with instructions and assurance and, and Bible text, proof texts, and, and the certainty that I was doing what God wanted, and instead he said, the will of God is none of your business. 
I've since come to understand what he meant. Uh, because God has stretched me, he's pulled me, he's humbled me, he's broken me, he's placed me in positions where I didn't want to go, he's scared me, he's made me insecure, he's employed me for zero wages so that I didn't know how my family would be fed and supported or the bills would be paid. Uh, and I didn't even know where I was going to be the next day. I've been hurt, I've been robbed, I've been forsaken, I've been betrayed, I've been humiliated and dishonored, taken advantage of, misunderstood, reviled, falsely accused and forgotten, and that's just by the churches and Christians. If I'd known what God knew was going to happen to me beforehand, I would never have done anything. I'd have never even got out of bed. So, I, I hasten to add, lest it be misunderstood, all those things that were against me that I've just mentioned were actually contributing, contributory to the blessings and the privileges uh, that God has accorded me and my family. We never missed a, a, paid, a bill to pay. Uh, I live in my own home. It, it's mine. No mortgage. It's, it's absolutely brilliant what God has done, although I have to um, confess when I say that I, I am aware that there are thousands of Christians uh, whose experience have not been like that. They're persecuted today. Uh, they're living with nothing, and uh, they're going through really hard times. And uh, I don't even, well, I want to honor them. They put me to shame. Uh, but I'm just telling it like it is. Uh, I'm, I'm not throwing a pity party here. I'm just simply saying that, that when you are seeking to serve God, that God will look after his own. And uh, that somehow he will, he will turn or, or give you grace for whatever you are going to, uh, uh, to go through. So my first point then is it is not necessarily a good thing to know what God's will is in your life. If you knew it, you'd probably be scared to death. And, and the second is like to it, that this idea that God has a wonderful plan for your life, I have yet to be convinced it is true. If by that you mean that there is but one course that God has mapped out for you in life. If that is the case, what happens if you miss it? Are you be, to be condemned for the rest of your life to a substandard experience of Christ? Uh, does it condemn you to, uh, to somehow feel that you'll never achieve what God wanted you to achieve? Uh, it appears from Scripture that some, like Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Paul, believed that God had called them to their ministry from before their birth. Now, I have no way of knowing whether that was true or not, or whether they were just uh, using that as a colloquial way of expressing a, a, a sense of calling upon their lives. But it raises other questions. Because if God had a special call for them, what about Judas? 
was Judas foreordained that he should betray Jesus. When Paul and Barnabas had their blazing row that split up a very successful apostolic team, did they abort God's plan for them? What do you do if you still don't know after praying, reading your Bible, and talking to others who you trust what specific and unique plan God has for you? And frankly, I think that's the case for thousands and thousands of Christians. They can't say, I feel that God has called me to this. They're just trying to live Christianly uh, with where they're at. So I suggest that treating the Bible like a spiritual almanac to find what shape your life to take in the future is to both misuse and to misunderstand the Bible. You see, it's not about God's plan for your life. It's about God's plan. Full stop. God has got a wonderful plan. <laughs> it will involve your life in the final analysis. But in the sense that uh, he's got everything mapped out for you, I just do not believe that. You see, the Bible is about God's purposes first and last, from beginning to end. God, I believe, will involve us in his purposes if we permit him to do so. But any role we have is always subsidiary to his purposes. You see, all the people in the Bible that God used in his purposes were always getting on with their very active lives when God called them. You look at them, Moses, David, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Amos, uh, all these guys, Isaiah, uh, is he, uh, Elijah, Elisha, all of them were actually very, very busy and very often successful getting on with life, and then God came to them. What they did for a living, what family they had, the house or town where they lived and a raft of other important factors in their lives was down to their choice. It was not a choice that either God or others had made for them. Now, I know it can be argued that God sovereignly superintended every one of them, even before they knew him. But I can't sit comfortably with that because that makes us pawns in a, in a game of spiritual chess. And... Uh, and our essential humanity and our free will makes God, therefore, just a manipulating monster who's, uh, who's somewhere distant from us and just shifting us around uh, to play his particular game. You see, in my opinion, it is simpler and far more likely that when God wanted people to serve his purposes, he knew where to find them. He knew what state they were in and within all that, he chose them to further the purpose that he had in mind to secure through them. See, I think of Saul. Saul of Tarsus was a leather worker, uh, just a Jewish leather worker, uh, probably following in his father's footsteps. He made tents and saddles and, uh, and purses and bags and, and uh, water and wineskins. And then Christ met him on the Damascus Road, and what did he do? He became a Christian leather worker. 
he still retained his ability uh, to support himself with his letter making. Then the Spirit of God called him to be an apostle and he became an apostolic letter worker. And there were times when he had to support himself by, uh, by uh, returning to his uh, leather working trade. Now, did God choose him because he was single and had no family to worry about? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, Peter followed a similar pattern as, as Paul. He was a fisherman when Jesus called him. He was still a fisherman, if you remember, uh, at the end of uh, the book of John. They think it's all over, that Jesus had finished. He's, he's dead and died and done. But the whole thing has been, uh, been a, a massive failure. So he's, what did he say? I go fishing. Well, you can't go fishing unless you've got a fishing boat. And so presumably, he, he, he'd got his fishing business still there. He'd left it in the hands of, uh, of uh, his employees while he was following the Lord Jesus. But we know that Peter had a wife. Paul talks, he says, don't, don't I have the right to do the same as Peter, who, who takes a, a wife with him? So God could use a Paul because he's single. He could also use a, a, a Peter while he was married. Now, the point is that neither of them knew beforehand what, what God would do with their lives. One chose to be a leather worker, the other one chose to be a fisherman. And apart from the time at Antioch when the Holy Spirit, presumably through a prophecy given by one of his fellow church leaders, called Paul and Barnabas to their apostolic ministry, and that one single Macedonian vision we've spoken about, it is evident that Paul took the decisions as to where he should minister. He was not sent by special revelation. Uh, in fact, it seems that the church at Antioch set him out, sent him out on his first missionary journey and said, go round uh, those particular towns. And then Paul said to Barnabas, let us go again and visit these churches. Paul, Paul had determined that he would go to Spain. It was Paul who was making uh, the choices, not uh, divine direction. You see, there are no Old Testament scriptures that Paul could have plucked the word out and said, go, uh, go to Philippi. Uh, there just wasn't any, anyone there. So uh, those scriptures informed him not about God's plan for his life, but about God's plan. When God... When Paul understood God's plan, then Paul tailored his life so that he could then serve the purposes of God in that plan. And I, I, I'm sure he did it as he thought best. He walked prayerfully through doors of opportunity whilst remaining open to what, whatever intervention God might bring. But even when God did do supernatural intervention, like Agabus who, who took hold of his girdle and says, thus says the, the, the spirit, uh, the man to whom this girdle belongs is, is going to experience suffering at the hands of the Jews. Uh, and all the Christians said to Paul, don't go up to Jerusalem. He said, what's the matter with you? He says, I'm going to Jerusalem and if I die, I die. <laughs> so <laughs> the, the, the divine intervention, Paul ignored it. Well, if he did ignore it. I think he was just aware that 
that God was saying to him, uh, this is what is going to happen to you. And Paul said, fine, I'm going to finish my ministry. I'm going to finish my course. See, he wasn't thinking about God's wonderful plan for his life. (laughs) In fact, you look at the life of Paul and you wonder whether there's anything wonderful about it uh, at all in terms of him personally. So for Paul, suffering was an unwelcome but ever-present consequence of making God's eternal purpose in Christ known wherever opportunity offered. It wasn't, you know, God has something fantastic for you and everything is going to turn out lovely. Paul said, I know that if I do this, I'm going to get persecution, but that's a price worth paying because God has made known to me his plan and I want to do what I can to serve him. So that Paul never knew uh, where his decisions might take him, nor did it matter. I I remember that uh, I was sitting in a home council, uh, home missions council meeting uh, with Keith Monument and lots of other guys, and we were listening to Ron Eglin, and uh, he he said uh, all this talk about where where God wants to to send us to plant churches. He said, put a map of the UK uh, in front of me, give me some darts and I'll throw them. And he says, wherever they land, that's where we'll go. And I think that's true. I think that's true. So I suggest all this is very instructive. The Bible is not an almanac in which we are to find our future all planned out for us from day today. It's about God's eternal purpose and how we are to live as followers of Jesus in response to God's invitation into his purpose. And God gives you enormous latitude and autonomy to make your own choices in life. Of course, make them wisely, make them sensibly, but the fact is... I don't think there's only one person in life that you could marry. There's not only one place that you could live. I mean, I'm glad I've married Christine, and I wouldn't change her for the world. Uh, But uh, if it hadn't been Christine, I could have married somebody else and maybe lived just uh, as happily. And those who get divorced, they seem to have no difficulty finding somebody else, do they? So if God has some special, unique role for you, And scripture and experience tells us that there's an awful lot of people who don't have a special, unique role, then he knows where you are. He knows the circumstances in which your choices have placed you, and he knows how to get your your attention. See, the fact is, the Bible says, all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble. But cheer up, I've overcome the world. So you don't need to know your future. In fact, Jesus said, sufficient for every day is the evil thereof. Don't worry uh, about the future. He said, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything you need will be added to you. The only thing that we do know about the future is that when Jesus comes, it's going to be absolutely glorious.
Uh, we are going to live and reign with him forever and forever. So please don't treat the Bible like a spiritual horoscope because that goes on quite often. I think I've told you before that in the past, in the past how Christian bookshops used to sell what they called promise boxes, which were little wooden or cardboard boxes in which were uh, little rolls of, of paper with Bible texts printed on them. And uh, uh, it was called a promise. So every day uh, you would go to the promise box and you'd pull one of these rolls out and you read it and there was a promise on which you could depend. You could claim it and uh, God would bring it to pass in your life. Uh, of course, a modern variant is the Christian calendar uh, with Bible texts for each day uh, that are printed upon them. Uh, and the practice was reinforced by a very popular chorus that some of you will remember that went like this. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line, all the blessings of his love divine, every promise in the book is mine. <clears throat> Well, thank God it's not true. There are some promises that were given to people that were of judgment and, uh, and of uh, great difficulty. Uh, and not one of us will want to pluck one of those texts out and say, that's today. That's my promise for today. Uh, you see, there are specific promises that are made to individuals. The promise that was made to Mary that the Holy Ghost would overshadow her and the child that would be born uh, would be the Son of God. That's not a promise that we can look at and say, it's mine. Uh, certainly if you're a man. It, <laughs> it was unique to Mary. So was the promise to Jeremiah and Moses and David. They are unique to them and nobody else. One often hears the promise that God made to King Solomon on the occasion of the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, wrongly applied. You hear it all the time, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I've heard that so many times, preached upon, uttered in prayer meetings as we are praying. Who for? The UK. If It's all dependent on us. We Christians have got to humble ourselves, turn from our ways and pray, and then God will heal our land. But in fact, it is an extract from a bigger context. God says, to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, the temple, for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name, etc., etc. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man 
as a ruler over Israel. You see, the whole thing is Israel-specific. It's got nothing to do with the UK or any other nation. Uh, when disaster happens to us, it's not because the rains have been withheld or the locusts have, uh, have suddenly turned up. Uh, the, the English throne is, is not the throne of David. So it's an Israel-specific promise. And if Israel remained faithful to the Mosaic covenant, the land, the promised land, that unique land, would be blessed with rain and be fertile and fecund. So Solomon's responsibility as king was to call for national repentance and faithfulness to the covenant expressed in prayer. He was to stand in front of the nation and say, pray. He was to rebuke the nation for its, uh, its idolatry and as king, lead the way back to the Lord. Now, as Christians, of course, we are obligated to obey Paul's injunction in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. First of all, then, I urge that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people, even for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Such prayer is all... Such prayer for all is good and welcome before God our Savior since he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. But that is a totally different issue than the one that God promised to Solomon 3,000 years ago. No Gentile nation, including the UK, has ever been in covenant relationship with God with all that that entails with the temple and the land. Indeed, whilst the UK has had a long history of being influenced by the Christian gospel, uh, as reflected in our Judean Christian uh, foundation of our laws, it has never, ever been a Christian nation. Not even when Oliver Cromwell and, uh, and, and the Puritans uh, governed it. Now, Regrettably, the Christian influence on our nation has eroded. But the diminution of our economy has got more to do with what the politicians are, are doing in Westminster than it has to do with the condition of the weather or, or, or insects invading us. And furthermore, even if, the, if it be granted that Christians are called by God's name, which is debatable, they were called by God's name Israel. And El is... Is, is the name of God. There's nothing uh, about the name Christian apart from Christ, but they're, they're followers of Christ uh, to say that we are, we are particularly special. Uh, but even if that were the case, that we are God's people, what sins are we to repent of for the nation? How can I possibly affect what a nation is doing? No matter how, hum how much I humble myself, and flog myself and pray. Is it even possible to repent for somebody else? Yeah. Given that repentance involves a turning away from idolatry back to God, can that be done on behalf of other people who still want to cling to their sin and their idolatry? I think we can pray for others, but we can't repent for them. Now the difference between the prayer in 2 Chronicles 7 
and that of 1 Timothy 2 is that the former is a prayer of repentance that only the Jewish nations can pray, nation can pray, while the latter prayer is a prayer for protection for all that all Christians can pray, can pray. That human society, and in particular rulers and authorities, political rulers and authorities, may sustain an environment under which the Christian gospel of the kingdom may be freely and safely proclaimed in public. You see, you can't just pluck this text out of its context, not only its context in the Bible, but the context in which Paul wrote it. You see, in, in, in Western democracies, the state seems little interested in the church. Uh, in fact, in, in, in America, uh, by constitution, the state and the church are, are separated. They must not talk to one another. And, and we're heading uh, pretty much that way in the UK. Uh, but in Paul's first century world, the political rulers of the day were very interested in the church because it was proclaiming that there was only one king, a crucified Messiah, which didn't fit comfortably with the Jewish rulers and that there was only one king greater than Caesar and that didn't sit well with the Roman rulers. So consequently, the Christian church was constantly perceived as a threat to politico-religious rule and persecution was never far away. So this remarkable call to prayer for its persecutors, contrary to the prayer that Solomon was required to teach backslidden Israel to pray, was that pagan rulers and unbelieving Jewish leaders should be saved from their slavery to Satan's deception and power and enabled to understand that obedience to Jesus' gospel and not opposition to it was crucial to the true welfare of the state and its citizens. At the, temp at the dedication of the temple, God was instructing Solomon's king to call the people to repentance and prayer. In, in 1 Timothy, Paul is, is calling God's people to pray for the rulers. It's the very reverse of what Solomon was called to do. And such prayer was never simply a prayer to be prayed behind closed doors. And just among us, it was always to be accompanied by action, public action, to call these rulers to account. That's why they were interested in the church, because the church didn't keep its mouth shut. It insisted on declaring that Jesus was Lord. And uh, there's a classic case in Philippi where, where Paul is beaten unjustly by the Roman lictors, uh, and thrown into prison overnight. Uh, and then you know a story that, that the next day the magistrates send and say, clear off, we don't want you. And Paul says, I'm not going. I'm not going. You beat us, you uh, ill-treated us publicly, being Roman citizens, uh, which put the fear of God into what, what, what the fear of wrath, the fear of Caesar into them. Uh, and, and Paul says, I'm not going until you come and give me a public apology. Uh, so here is Paul uh, actually uh, acting out 
what he's praying for. He's praying that they may, may be brought to account and made to realize that there's one who is greater than Caesar, one who can even cause earthquakes and cause prisoners to be set free. So first century prayer and, uh, for pagan rulers and, uh, and authorities has, has got a, a totally different connotation for us. We don't often pray for our rulers. It rarely, it rarely enters our head. Why? Because by and large, they don't get in our hair. We get upset when they don't listen to us. We get upset when they put things on the television and so on, which are, which are anti-Christian. Uh, but by and large, uh, they, they don't affect us. But in, in the first century world, every morning that you got up, there was a likelihood that you'd be arrested there was a likelihood that you could be thrown into prison or you could be apprehended by the authorities and, and punished. And so their prayer was, was an important prayer. It was part of their daily prayer. God, will you keep us safe? Will you keep us faithful to the gospel message so that, so that we may live for Christ in a world that is determined not to know you? Uh, so it was a very real thing for them, though not so much for us. And another uh, text, and uh, kind of to bring this to a close, that is oft quoted but misapplied for the same reason is Jeremiah 20, 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I have plans to give you a future filled with hope. This is an excerpt from a promise made in a letter, Jeremiah, sent to the elders of the southern kingdom of Judah, deported in captivity in Babylon. Uh, the prophet foretells the, uh, the restoration of the Jews back to, to, uh, to Jerusalem and their homeland at the end of 70 years. It's not a general promise that we can kind of pluck out and say, this is, this is my personal promise. God is going to bless me. He's got plans for my life. Plans to prosper me. Plans not to harm me. Actually, the church is promised persecution. All those who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, we do have a future hope. Thank God we do. But it is Christ who is our hope. So we look at texts like this, and, and it's like plucking this little spill of paper out and saying, here's a promise. And, and it's all about me. Uh, so, I think that I, I've said enough to just say that we need to rediscover what God's purpose is in the Bible. It is not an almanac. It is not a horoscope. Uh, there, there is a way to read the Bible that is going to make the Bible come alive and be relevant to us today and enable us to live for Christ was giving us all the autonomy that God intended us to have, was giving us all the liberty we had to make choice. I don't think God is particularly fussed what color you paint your walls. I don't think God is particularly fussed what job you have. If you enjoy doing it, go for it. That's what God says. So uh, we're going to be looking at, at how we can actually make sense of reading the Bible. How are we to understand 
how this Bible operates and not treat it as though it's a lucky dip or, or something that, that you can't find any consistency about at all. And he's not entirely left to being subjective. So, time is gone. No questions, but you can have questions next week.